Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And we here at The Breakdown, well, we are here for the audience, Marisa, despite the occasional monsoon outside. Yeah, it seems like it's probably good news for the reservoirs, but it's been quite a mess around Northern California and even, I think, Southern California as well. So everyone be careful. But, but today we have just the thing to keep you warm and dry. (laughs) Really? Well, that's what it says here. Our guest is someone uh, who knows a thing or two about messes politically. And baby-related. Baby-related messes, too. Buffy Wicks is a former Obama campaign and administration official, a mom of a super cute toddler, if that's not, like, too uh, unobjective for me to say. Super cute. Yeah. And now she is the assemblywoman who... Assemblywoman representing Berkeley, Richmond, El Cerrito, part of Oakland. It's like a really big district. It's a district. big district. Yeah. But first we're going to talk, uh, well, let's talk government shutdown. Pelosi goes toe to toe in those pink heels with you know who, uh, maybe, um, and also something you are familiar with, Marisa, PG&E. Yeah. We'll... Let's get to that in a second. Let's talk about the more fun government shutdown related news, which is yeah. this battle royale between Speaker Pelosi and President Trump. So Pelosi, I mean, uh, you know. We've covered her for a while. This was a very Nancy move. She sent this letter yesterday. Dear Donald. Dear Donald, I was thinking about it, and since 800,000 workers don't have their paychecks... Maybe you should mail in your State of the Union address. (laughs) Yes, I mean, literally. Sadly, given the security concerns, and unless government reopens this week, I suggest we work together to determine another suitable date, blah, 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 for the state of the state. Took or, like a day to respond. Or you could consider delivering it in writing to the Congress, yeah. which is how it used to be, I guess. It was Thomas Jefferson. I'm sure Trump would like to go back to the days of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, no, you know, he, I think he's met his match. Yeah. In Nancy Pelosi, and and, and the, what is so apparent or becoming apparent is that her strengths of keeping this really diverse caucus together are really coming mm-hmm. through here because he's tried to, you know, probably figured he could peel a few of them off. He tried to do that. None of them actually took him up on his invitation to come to the White House. Um, so. Well, and then he clapped back today. He was like, I'm sorry to inform you that we're going to cancel this this thing nobody knew about. He was, she was right. supposed to go to Afghanistan. Um, and he did say in the letter, you know, if you want to, you can fly a commercial. Right. Which I'm well, sure the Secret Service or whoever protects Congress would be yeah, super I'm, stoked I'm sure on. United flies to, you know, Kabul. <laughs> uh, but the other thing was he, he said, we're canceling your trip to Egypt. And then Pelosi's press person said, um, we're not going to Egypt. <laughs> bad so, information. Can, about bad it. information. Anyway. Fake news. I mean, yeah. I, I do think that the speaker has a point, which is that the the state of the state would be pretty incongruous at a time of this government shutdown, given the sort of spectacle that it is. And, and you do wonder how, you know, if if she hadn't done this, sort of how it would have worked. Um, well, I would guess that half of them wouldn't have been there or more than half. <laughs> 
Yeah, right. You know, it would have been sort of just, just not show up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, who knows? But, uh, yeah, I think uh, my I'm still thinking this is going to get resolved now. I think he's real. I'm looking at his poll numbers this afternoon, you know, on real clear politics. They're kind of starting to drift down a little bit, which is what he cares about more than anything yeah. is winning and numbers, poll numbers. So we'll see. We'll find well, out. Well, I mean, and we know that the impact in California is still being felt. People are vandalizing Joshua Tree, which is like Somebody so- cut down a Joshua why Tree. Why would you go there and do that? I don't understand. Um, and then we've been hearing some rumors. Our colleague John Sepulveda confirmed one today that's a little interesting about the Coast Guard. Yeah, he uh, has a source in the Coast Guard, a 20-year veteran who uh, said that some of the contraband that they are collecting in the Coast Guard, including drugs- like they have nowhere to send them. These barrel or yeah. bushels of cocaine. So or, I don't apparently know, bushels, of, bushels of drugs. Bushels. <laughs> binders full. Binders full of drugs. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, but yeah. So back here in California, though, we've also had a pretty exciting political week. Um, but down in LA, unfortunately, the teachers are still on strike. Big sort of political roller coaster there. I mean, one thing that has really hit me, and, and tell me if you agree, but is just how. It seems like in California, every single politician has basically almost without fail positioned themselves on the side of the teachers. Um, you know, they probably know Butner, the superintendent of L.A. schools and have relationships. But it just seems like when you see every statement from the legislature, they're like out there on the picket lines saying, I haven't yeah. seen many Republicans doing that. That's true. But. Yeah. There's not a yeah. ton of No, I think, you know, and, and uh, of course, people have been asking the governor about that. Uh, but it's a bigger problem, of course, for Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles. It's not really, it's not, he doesn't have control of the school district, of course. But he's right. trying to, you know, Maybe get to run. Iowa and yeah. New Hampshire every now and then. So I'm sure he'd like to get that result. Yeah. And then, um, as you mentioned, the biggest news, I would say, of the week that I've been following was this PG&E intention to file for bankruptcy and, and sort of these looming questions about, our utilities and the future there and what it means for Governor Gavin Newsom. Yeah. And of course, you know, we talked to Governor Gray Davis uh, earlier in the week as uh, he went through something similar in 2001. Um, and then he lost his job. And then he lost his job. Different circumstances for sure. Uh, but, you know, as we were talking earlier, Marisa, you know, the Rahm Emanuel used to say, uh, never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> How'd that work out for him? Yeah, how did that work? Well, yeah. Well, we'll talk with our guests about some of that in a little bit. But, you know, I, I was thinking, though, there's talk about all kinds of things, including, you know, making it a, a, a public utility. And I'm thinking, you know, Newsom's slogan was what? Courage for a change. Yeah. Right. So we'll see. Let, let's see what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably not very likely that like the government would fully take it over. But I do think that this presents an opportunity for this governor to stand up and be a leader and try to get these parties to the table. And I think maybe um, be a little stronger in this area than we saw Jerry Brown. And get stronger oversight. Also yeah. from the CPUC and, you know, perhaps some other body as well. Yeah. So we'll be watching that. We do know that he has one appointment to the five member PUC. So not a game changer there. But, um, you know, the, I think this next few weeks, it'll be fascinating to see. But we're going to take a break right now. Um, and when we get back, we will talk to Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're excited to have the new East Bay Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks in the studio. Buffy, welcome to The Breakdown. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey there. So I want to ask you, you were sworn in. We were there the day you were sworn in a few weeks ago. I was in the Senate, actually. Sorry. Mm. It's okay. Uh, I was there. Uh, And you had with you your family, your little Jojo, your Mm -hmm. two-year-old. What was that like for you after having worked so many years to help others get elected to finally be elected yourself? It's pretty emotional. You know, I mean, sitting on that, you know, on the floor and you're in this, it's gorgeous in that building, mm-hmm. right? I invite an, any constituents to come up and take a tour, although I'm still learning where everything is. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, the insti- the power of the institution is, is very emotional. And I had that same experience when I worked in the White House. I remember going through the gates and being like, if I don't feel emotional every day about being here and feel honored, then I, I need to go find some other profession, you know? So in that sense, it was it was great. And having my daughter there, she's, you know, she's two. Um, she was with me a lot on the campaign as well. She yeah. was about six months old when I got into the race. Um, so she's spent the vast majority of her life. Uh, I saw one story where it said that she she mimics how you stand when you talk because <laughs> yeah. she's been watching you for so long giving she, your pitch to voters. She just like expects now that anytime I'm, I'm with a crowd of people that I'm just going to get up and speak. You know, <laughs> that's just like, she's like that's what mom. you do. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And she would like hand mimic me and stuff. It was really cute. And and to and to be to be fair, I know a lot of people thought that or there was accusations that Gavin Newsom planted Dutch running up to the stage. Two year olds. You will just run up. Try I, scripting you, I have a two-year-old. Two-year-old. Yeah, you cannot yeah. script a two-year-old, and they will just run up to you. And I mean, you can let them off side. the leash, so to speak, I guess, <laughs> yeah, and like yeah. say if you want to go up there, it's free-range two-year-old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to ask you though, because and this occurred to me when Dutch, uh, the governor's two-year-old, came running up on the stage, or waddling up, or whatever he was doing, <laughs> toddling, toddling, yeah. up, <laughs> not waddling. He is a toddler. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, but it, it reminded me of how protective of their kids, the Obamas were and the Clintons Mm -hmm. were. And I wonder if you and Peter, your husband, had any discussions about, you know, how much you wanted to have your kids you know, if you have another one, you're, you know, but your daughter out out in front on the campaign trail and, you know, visible like that. Yeah. I mean, I think part of, well, first of all, I wasn't running for president, um, so I didn't have that same level. <laughs> oh, fine. You, Obama, <laughs> Bill, yeah, I know, Hillary, yeah, same yeah. thing. Yeah, totally. Um, so there wasn't that same level of kind of scrutiny, frankly, for them, safety issues, right? And, yeah. Um, but for us, it was a lot of just logistical challenges. I mean, JoJo came with me to stuff all the time because she needed to. Who else was going to watch her, you know? And nurse her. At the and beginning. nurse her. I, w- I, I breastfed for 18 months, and um, which was longer than I 
thought I would, but she was allergic to dairy. So, you know, yeah. you, you do what we need to do. And I was lugging my breast pump around and, you know, it was, it was like planes, trains and automobiles with parenting. So I just brought her with me to a lot of stuff because we really needed to. Um, so she was just part of the campaign. And I think, you know, it's good to see women running for office and incorporating their children into the campaign and, and fathers as well. You know, I think it's important. Yeah. I mean, two things I've given a lot of thought to. One is that I've noticed more male lawmakers as well mm-hmm. being more comfortable in just the last couple of years like bringing their kids up for those you know ceremonial days and and wanting to talk about it a little more mm-hmm. um and and something that I've thought about a lot cuz like I brought my kid to the DNC when he was 5 months old is like how for people in our generation it's like more like I feel like you know our parents you had to sort of pretend like you didn't have kids like oh you just go over there now it's like almost a mandate to come out and be like yeah I'm a parent and this is part of it and it was interesting because I did get some negative feedback on the campaign trail and it was from an older generation of people saying like don't bring your kid with you you know and like bad parenting yeah like yeah and I it was interesting I had an older woman but if she wasn't there they would have been like where's your daughter yeah like don't bring your kid and then one woman who's watching her yeah she's said, oh, you say you care about all this early childhood stuff, you know, but you're running for office. How do you like square that? And I'm like, I can be a good parent <laughs> and also care from a policy point of view about early childhood education. And of course, they would never ask a man that question. Yeah. Yeah. Did Peter so, get that? Anyway. Yeah. Well, let's go back a little. We like to talk about kind of where people came from. I know you grew up in the Sierra foothills. Mm-hmm. Um in a trailer mm-hmm. is that like is that because your dad was for the forest service or was that because of so my my were? dad worked for the u.s forest service for about 35 years and my mom was a stay-at-home mom uh and we lived in a trailer park and it was okay. like a forest service trailer park and we owned a trailer which i think is funny i asked my mom i was like how much did that cost and i think it was like like five thousand dollars or something in like 1976 or something like that and <laughs> later in life they they when I was probably well, when I was in college, they they built their dream home and they purchased property when I was like in grade school. So we moved the trailer onto the property. The trailer is still there to this day, and they now rent it out. And I'm like, like we have Airbnb. really <laughs> the, yeah the ROI on that trailer is yeah, like, right? significant. Did you yeah. feel like you grew up without much, or was it just sort of normal in that it was well. Forest Hills, you know, it's not a wealthy place. Yeah. It's a very working class community. There are a number of trailer parks in that area. And there's a newer part of the that community that's like folks that have kind of fled Sacramento. And so they build nicer homes and stuff. So it's a little bit of a mix. But a lot of my friends growing up, it, you know, very salt of the earth. Um, when we were younger, my, my mom decided to go back to school and she got her degree when I was younger. My brother was younger. And then she went into the workforce, you know, and became a loan officer and started making more money. So we okay. kind of, you know, it was this process. But I kind of watched my mom go through that process. Mm-hmm. You know? So were your parents political? And like, when did you get the bug? For they, you know, they um, I was, I think, political, like out of the womb. I mean, <laughs> you know, and I think, you know, I, my, my, my brother's gay. And I think also growing up in rural California, you know, um, and watching my brother go through this experience as a a, a gay man, a, a gay young man in rural California in the 80s was not an easy thing, you know. Um, so I think I was shaped by that, certainly. Um, I, as as I became more political, my mother became more political. And so now she's... How, did, how was that? How did she express she, that? She, you know, she's always been kind of the community organizer um, without kind of... Are they Democrats? They're Democrats, okay. yeah. Um we always like to ask people. Yes. Like, are, do you have a do you have a mixed family or not? You know? Yeah. No, they're they're Democrats. Um, you know, although they're my dad's pretty centrist Democrat, mm-hmm. but my mom has become much more engaged politically as she's gotten older. And so, when you were growing up, if I'm not not mistaken, your congressman would have been John Doolittle, right? John Doolittle, who was very conservative. 
very conservative. My first campaign ever was against John Doolittle in 1996. You ran? I'm 12 and I'm running for I volunteered. And it was one of those things where it was like, we're going to win. And I like put my heart and soul into it. We lost by like 35 points or something. And I was like <laughs> devastated, but I loved it. So yeah. so you moved yeah. to San Francisco, became an activist yeah. later on. I, I, well, after college, I moved to D.C. I worked on the Hill. And then I came back to California and um, was living in San Francisco, um, playing on a gay and lesbian water polo team. With, with me, Scott. full disclosure, yeah. yes, among others, Scott, many others. Full disclosure. I do have a bronze medal from the Gay Games from City 2002. I have to say also, just as an aside, Buffy played the toughest position in water polo, which is called the whole set. In a, right? I mean, you yeah. have, usually it's like these and six a co-ed foot team. four on a co-ed team. She gave as good as she got, let me tell you. you know, I can I can say that with certainty. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> and it prepared you for the political yeah, exactly, career. Exactly. 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 And so, now you don't have to trim your nails. But yeah. yeah. So uh, from our research, it seems like the Howard Dean 2004 campaign was your first presidential campaign. Yeah. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. And we were we actually watched back that moment where he did the, the yell and, and everybody acted like he had just like murdered somebody. Uh, it. it it seems so quaint now. So that benign. The, I know. Yeah, so benign. The bar has changed. You know, it's like on the Democratic side where like Howard Dean screams and like Obama wears a tan suit. Like those yeah. are our scandals, you know. And meanwhile, Donald Trump is like a full on racist and misogynist. Yeah. So. So what, what did that kind of give you the bug for the, the bigger presidential stuff? Because you obviously went on to work for Obama and then Clinton. Um... Well, it certainly gave me a bug for organizing, political organizing. I was an organizer for Howard Dean, you know, l- low low guy on the totem pole out there door knocking and doing house yeah, parties about, and like, stuff. Well, how do you explain what organizing is? It's a it's a good question. Depends on who you ask. But to me, organizing is really about building power. I mean, in concept. Right. And it's about relationship building and engaging people in the political process, whether it's for advocacy or for a campaign. And for me, it's a more authentic way to really engage people in politics, because, you know, as voters, it's like people are making decisions of who they're going to vote on. And they're like, oh, I've gotten 10 pieces of negative mail about this person and 12 pieces of negative mail, neg- negative mail about this person. Like, often you're making decisions based on that data information, mm-hmm. which is not a fun place to be as a voter. It sounds like kind of almost grunt work, right? I mean, it's very, it's not glamorous. It, it's not glamorous. It's really hard work. But when you can really build a grassroots campaign where people have investment, they're emotionally invested in your candidate or your cause, they're putting their most precious commodity, which is their time, into it, it's powerful. And that's what I loved about Dean and Obama. I know you put that to good use when you ran for the assembly. I think you had, what, over 200 House parties? 239. Yeah. And so what was it, I mean, you, you know, jumping ahead now to the your, the campaign that you just won, um, how is it different for you being an organizer, being a consultant, you know, managing campaigns and being yourself a candidate? You know, it's... Um, I used a lot of what I learned, you know, and I've done all different kinds of organizing. I try to bring that to the table in this campaign. I sort of said, if you don't run a well-organized campaign, like you don't deserve to ever work in politics again, you know, (laughs) Um, because it's what I've been doing as a profession for such a long period of time. I mean, in a way, it was a little bit more liberating because, you know, when you're working for President Obama, if you say something wrong – you know, that could have bigger implications for him. But if I say something wrong around my own platform, it's just on me, you know? Oh, interesting. So there's almost like... More and less pressure at the same There's time. There's more and less pressure, yeah. I mean, the hardest thing, truthfully, really, was the constraints on my family. Yeah. And that's the difficult part, right? Constraints we, in what way? You know, I was I did 239 house parties. Those were all in the evenings and on the weekends. 
you know. And so it's just hard, you know, when you're we're raising Jojo and my husband's got his own job and he's in D.C. a lot. And so we're trying to navigate all of that. And it's just a, it's a tall order to kind of try to um, juggle all those pieces. And for me, like, I don't mind working 100 hours a week. I did it for years on presidential campaigns. But when I put those constraints on my family, that's harder, right? The, the guilt of forcing my husband to go through that and my daughter, you know. Well, I want to ask you about something because I know that when you were on the Obama campaign, re-election campaign, so um, 2012, mm-hmm. that must have been, you decided to freeze your eggs. I did. Because you were worried that you may not. Yeah. You know, yeah. Stop working those hundred hour weeks. I know you didn't end up actually having to use them, but um, I don't know. Was that a tough decision? And then like you like also just going through that process while you're working on a campaign like that must have been kind of challenging. Yeah. And I went through three cycles to do oh, that. Wow. Um, to get everyone I hear freezer. like says that it's awful. Yeah, it's not fun. But for me, it felt like um, it was an empowering choice that I could make. Mm-hmm. Because it, for me, it was about preserving choices for the future and um, the most important choices for the future, um, which I still may need to draw on those eggs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How did you explain that to like the 20 year old staffer? Like, don't like that's <laughs> I was behind pretty, the pizza. I was pretty open about it. You know, the senior staff knew and it was just what I was going through. We also the Obama world, like we're pretty kind of close knit group of people. And a lot of these are folks I'd been working with for years. Um, So I was just, I mean, I tend to be a fairly open person um, and just said, hey, I'm freezing my eggs. I got to go to a doctor's appointment today. It's just what it is. Yeah. Just a reminder, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks. Buffy, let me ask you about your name. Mm. Buffy. Um, it's my real name. It's your real name. Uh, was it a plus or a minus on the campaign? You trail? know, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. Of <laughs> or just in life. <laughs> yeah, there's still moments where I like, look in the mirror, I'm like, your name is Buffy. Like, that is <laughs> I know, right? Like, um, But at the same time, I sort of believe you kind of have to like grow a personality when you like have that kind of a name. It's like the song A Boy Named Sue, you know? <laughs> like, you just have to kind of own who where you are. Where did it come from? So my, um, my, an aunt that I never met, she was killed in a car accident when my dad was little. Her name was Kitty Joe. And my, my first name is actually Buffy Joe. Hmm. And they really liked, they wanted to kind of give an ode to her. So they liked the name Buffy. So they added Buffy Joe, um, which is why my daughter's name is Josephine. So there's a little through line there on the cool. Joe. But they just liked it. They thought, my parents thought they wanted me to be different. <laughs> little did they know what they were getting themselves into. <laughs> so No one called you BJ. No, no one called me BJ. Now, no. now Scott has on the radio. <laughs> um, so we are jumping around a little bit here, but I do want to ask you, because you were in the White House or in the administration, like when the ACA passed. Mm-hmm. Um, Affordable Care Act. Affordable Care Act. And... Um, well, Scott's question here is, why did the White House do such a terrible job of selling the ACA? I'll make <laughs> You're it. You're putting that on me. I can't believe it. No, but, that was I our mean, perception, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, the, and you were in the Office of Public Engagement, right? Yeah. So it was kind of weird. Like, in hindsight, I guess, do you have, like, if, if you could go back, you know, w- do you think there was a way to do that differently? Are you talking about actually selling the bill yeah. or the implementation? No, the, the implementation. Well, selling the the law. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think there was problems with implementation, you know, mm-hmm. which we... Website. Right, exactly. I mean, it was, we kind of got out of the gate rough. And I wasn't in the administration at that time, but okay. I was, uh, you know, a news but follower like everyone else. Right, yeah. So I think there, there were obviously challenges around that, you know. It's like now super popular. I mean, is Ironic. that just... I always thought that was because the benefits didn't really took a while for people to feel the benefits, it, whereas they felt the mandate right away. You know, right, they felt right, the right. downsides, and it 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 just, it just did take a while, and and these things do take a while, and the implementation is always like the tough part, right? You can kind of 
put out a thousand great ideas, you can pass bills, but then like actually where the rubber meets the road is the, is the hard part. But it has proven to have worked for millions of people across this country. I also wonder like it's sort of like you see those statistics how like Nancy Pelosi's super unpopular when she's running for office, but when she's governing, she's fine. Like it's easier, you know, it's it's easier to sort of memorialize somebody or something when it's in the past, right? right. <laughs> and well, and there still, by the way, is a lot of work that needs to be done and yeah. we have to build on that. Yeah. Well, and it, but interesting too that a lot of these Republican deep red states are now expanding Medicaid under right. ACA because right. they don't want to leave all that money on the table. That's it's exactly a smart right. thing to do. All right. Well, let's talk about assembly, right? More? Yes. The, yeah. I, I actually have a question Go. about that. So I want to ask you about race. You uh, you ran for this seat and you were replacing Tony Thurmond, African American, mm-hmm. who ran and won, became the school chief. And you're a blonde white mm-hmm. girl, right? Yep. So how did that play out in the race? How did you deal with it? How did you think about it going into the campaign? And what did you have to deal with during the campaign? I mean, I think. For me, what I think voters want most of all is they want someone who's authentic and who's real and who's going to, you know, not try to hide the ball and stuff. And so I think that's the most important thing for candidates across the board. Um, And especially the the voters now, and you look at younger voters in particular, they really want authenticity. Um, And so for me, I tried to embody that in my campaign through the house parties, through, you know, the engagement online. I did a lot of video content, um, you know, and I do think I had a barrier to overcome in terms of like, I mean, my name is Buffy, right? I mean, it's like, it couldn't get more sort of like, you know, scripted if I tried, right? Um, So I think I just had to be very real about that kind of stuff. and just speak from the heart on the things that I cared about. And that what, that's what I think is really, really important. It's what I, th- I hope these presidential candidates in 2020 decide to do as well. When you entered the race, did you think or know that you would be painted as this sort of establishment? <laughs> because, I mean, and for our, reader, or our listeners outside of the Bay Area, maybe, like, I mean, this is a very liberal district. It includes Berkeley and parts of Oakland, Richmond. But it's also, like... I mean, only in the Bay Area would you coming from Obama be, you know, the sort of the shill for like the big corporations, right. developers. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, I got called this the corporate dem and all these sorts of things, right? And I still to and you raised a lot of money, right? I still haven't taken any corporate money, so. But you know, uh, it is what it is. Um, you know, I think part of it is I I came out a little out of left field. You know, I, I get that. Um, I hadn't come from a local elected office. I think almost all of my opponents had. Right. So I understand that. You know, um, I did raise a lot of money. I leveraged every single relationship I've had in politics for the last 20 years to raise the money that you need to, to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did. And then I also leveraged relationships for endorsements, you know, Kamala and President Obama. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, but I also ended up getting like eight of the 10 mayors in the district. And, you know, but for me, that's why it was very important because um, all those things sound nice and all. But if you're not in the community, talking with voters, listening to voters, asking what they care about, where they're at on stuff, then none of that other stuff matters. And that's why, for me, the House parties were really important. We also knocked on 115,000 doors in the race. And so those person-to-person contacts are really, really, really critical. Did you, like, what, did you, like, text Obama? Like, how do you get that endorsement? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing not text. I did not text the president. <laughs> I don't know. No, yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I don't have that level of uh, uh, connectivity to him. But, um, but and just to go back to the, the other question, I, I think that, um, you know, the Bay Area is sort of Fifty Shades of Blue, right? Yeah. You know, and, and I got sort of pigeonholed as that. But if you look at my track record, it's like anti-war organizer, work for Howard Dean, worked in the labor movement, you know. And so now I think, you know, and I know that there are voters in the district who probably weren't pleased with the fact that I won. But, you know, I they are my constituents now and they will hold me accountable. And I'm excited to do progressive things with them. Well, I think one of the positions you took, which I think was unique among all those candidates, was you came out as Gavin Newsom did and John Cox, one of the few things they agreed on was against Prop 10, against Mm -hmm. expanding rent control. Mm -hmm. 
how much grief did you take for that? I mean, that was a tough position to take, you know, and it was hard for me because emotionally, like, you know, I see in my district the impacts of what's happening in terms of our housing crisis and people losing, you know, their place um, and rents going up significantly. But I didn't feel like that was the right solution to the problem. And I will say what I'm doing now, which I said on the campaign trail, is figuring out what are the reforms we can do? What are the other tenant protection things that we can do? And that's a lot of the legislative work that I've been working on now, because I do think our renters need more protections. Do you think that there's like political will after the trouncing Prop 10 got for any of those changes? Because the real estate industry has been pretty good at the state yeah. level and always of beating that back. I mean, know? we are in a housing crisis. And so this is what I appreciated about the, the, the pro Prop 10 people is People are angry and they are frustrated. Yeah. And you, I, I see it and feel it and people feel it and see it all the time. And so we have to take that energy and, and funnel it in the right direction. You know, I wonder, we're just, we have about a minute and a half left. You, you spent time for Obama in Missouri, mm-hmm. which is a state which in Tough 2008 state. he almost won. Trump country now, deep red. And I'm just wondering, what do you think, looking ahead to 2020, what yeah. kind of person do you think the well, Democrats need to nominate? It goes back to what I said earlier, authenticity. I mean, I think people are allergic to like a talking point candidate. And so the candidates that have that kind of authenticity that are that are speaking really from the heart on what they believe are the ones that I think are going to are going to succeed um, and be successful. You Who would know? you put at the top of that list well, so far? I realize it's early. I have a bias. Yeah, I, I was going to say, Harris. I feel like if Kamala doesn't come out of your mouth, if right she now, runs, I, if Kamala Harris decides to In run, quotes, she, if. yeah, exactly. She's my girl. So, <laughs> so, and I, and I think she has those. She has all that. I think she's authentic and smart. And yeah, but it's tough sometimes too, like putting yourself out there, right? Because the, you don't often get rewarded for no. being candid. It's tough, but I, you know, if you're not being candid and being truthful about who you are, then why are you doing it? You know, and even if you do have to take tough positions on things, what I learned in the race is I can't be all things to all people. And I'm never going to be. And if I'm trying to be all things to all people, then I'm going to be a bad elected official, you know. And so I think that that rings true if you're running for school board or if you're running for president of the United States. All right. We're going to have to wrap Leave it up it here. That. Any more water polo That was you? fast. I know. <laughs> you guys are great. Let's keep doing this. <laughs> all right. Come on back. Come back to the pool. Thank too. you, <laughs> Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, for coming in. Thanks, guys. Thanks for Good having me. Good to have you. All right. Well, that will do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, and our engineer is Seal Muller. Ethan Lindsay is our executive editor. Holly Kernan is our chief content officer. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at M Lagos. That's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown. We'll see you next week. See you next time. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.